Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here, excited to round out an eventful 2021 with five conversations for 2022. I feel tremendously grateful for the opportunity I have hosting this show. I'm having conversations with authors and academics, entrepreneurs and founders, folks from all walks of life who are trying to make a difference in the world of education or have some perspective on where that world is headed. It's really an honor. And in addition to that, I have the added benefit of cozying up to these conversations to edit them for your listening pleasure. This all gives me an inside track on how to curate these conversations to showcase our best work and ideally shine a light on perspectives that you might have missed or maybe don't get enough attention in these uncertain times. Honestly, we can't do this show without our guests. And I'd like to take this opportunity to personally thank everyone who offered their time and their perspective by coming on as a guest over the course of the year. You've helped me take stock of what's happening in the world around us and provided me with a diverse cross-section of perspectives that have helped me solidify my thinking, which I hope in turn has helped our listeners get some perspective on where the world of learning is headed. 2021 was a crazy year on so many fronts. I think we did a nice job capturing the breadth of perspectives and the transformations that were happening in the world of education. Boiling all of this down into just five conversations is hugely difficult. We did 85 shows over the course of the year, spoke with in total 86 guests, if you count all of our panelists. Quite a range, an amazing cross-section of folks trying to move the needle in the world of learning. I would encourage everyone to subscribe and scan back through the catalog, see which shows resonate with you, and jump in. We'll be curating our catalog with some more focus heading into the new year. Be sure to subscribe and follow us to stay on top of these conversations when they first come out. But if you ever miss anything, it's always available, trendinginteducation.com. Follow us at Trending in Ed on Twitter. And we have lots of exciting developments on the horizon, which we'll continue to be talking about heading into 2022, including a live taping at South by Southwest EDU in March down in Austin. It's going to be a lot of fun. More to come on all that. But for now, let's pick up with the first of our five conversations heading into 2022. As Yoda would say, do or do not. There is no try. Mike Mariner is the co-founder and president of Road Trip Nation. We were fortunate enough to talk to Mike at the beginning of 2021. He was our first guest of the year. It's a great episode. I would encourage you to go back and listen. Mike's a really interesting example of someone who leaned into the possibility of pursuing his own path and what began as a road trip coming out of his college years when he was trying to find himself has now turned into a major media brand that is doing really good work to help the younger generation navigate the complexities of the world around them. Mike struck lots of optimistic notes and was talking about an audience that is so critical to the future of education. Lots to chew on in this conversation. Let's pick up with my interview with Mike Mariner from Road Trip Nation from back in January of 2021. What's really interesting about Road Trip Nation is that it ties to career pathing and storytelling in a way that is really compelling, particularly if you're looking at the undergraduate age range. It's a time where you're defining who you are. You're figuring out how to tell your own story. Can you expand a bit on the, the storytelling aspect of things? Yeah, honestly, I personally feel that in the age of social media that we all live in, that people are so used to quick, bite-sizable, curated things that the power of human-centered, somewhat longer form storytelling is more important than ever. I mean, look at the rise in interest in podcasts. I think that people are really craving deeper, richer, more authentic stories. And I think there is a danger of the social media age that we live in. We hear from the students that we work with that they're really intimidated when they go to say LinkedIn, because on LinkedIn, they're seeing everyone's perfect career path. Everyone went from college to being president right away. All of these amazing stories. There's no celebration of the student debt people had to pay off mm -hmm. or the resilience they gain yeah. through 
downsizing, they didn't go deep into the full arc of people's journeys and how they got to where they are today. And I think that's particularly important for the next generation and for people that are maybe at vulnerable career transition points to realize that they're not alone, that there's other people out there who've been through those exact same transition points. And a lot of what we do with Road Trip Nation is we try to really aggregate these stories at scale and then tag them for being first gen, first year family go to college or right. having a learning attention issue or being a military veteran transitioning through careers or being the next generation of women in science or whatever specific obstacles people are overcoming, they see that they're not alone and that there are people out there. And especially now in this crazy time we live in, more important than ever. Yeah. Building on that, you've focused specifically on community college in a new way, doing a weekly trend spotting show about education. Everybody's talking about community college and how a resilient community college system and other things like it are what's likely going to drive the turnaround that everyone is rooting for. But I'd love to hear more from you about how community college and community college students are factoring into Road Trip Nation's thinking. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. We have a big partnership with Chancellor Oakley and the California Community College System where we designed a road trip in California where we gave three California Community College System students the chance to drive across the state and interview people in careers who also went through the California Community College system. Mm. We don't celebrate enough the stories of people that have gone through two-year degree programs and the rich contribution these individuals make to our communities. And we also think that storytelling has a powerful opportunity to shift narratives and stigmas around certain pathways. And so we learned a lot on that trip and we've been really leaning into that and trying to celebrate and amplify these stories and shift narratives and shift stigmas. and increase visibility to the next generation and career seekers that there are so many different ways to connect with career pathways and they don't all require. Now, there's nothing wrong with the four-year degree path. If that's your path, absolutely, you know, more power to you. There are lots of different ways to finance that increasingly so. However, not all career paths require four-year degrees and that is totally okay. And so really helping to show the two-year degree path is not a second class path. We did a road trip focused on learning and attention issues a few years back. And we learned from the storytelling from that project that's not a disorder. It's a learning difference. It doesn't make you better or worse. The celebration of differences as just alternative, different paths, right? Storytelling can help to amplify. The social emotional aspect of learning, how to be traveling together and working together on problems, eating things maybe you shouldn't, just dealing with the realities of being out on the road. Can you talk about the, the social interpersonal aspects of what you see? Yeah, I mean, you learn a lot on a road trip. You learn how to embrace the unknown and to em embrace the twists and turns of the road. And you learn how to work as a team and you learn how to live in close quarters with people and how to have a healthy conflict. And you learn how to get through disagreements and, and commit and get through things together. And there are arcs on a road trip. There are times that are harder on the road than others. And you also get quiet space with yourself to really reflect and think about who you are. And one of the things that we call is we, we call it shedding the noise. Because when you can get away from your everyday and reflect on who you are, you also get away from all the pressure and societal stigmas and family pressure, whatever, mm -hmm. that's trying to pull you in so many different directions. And so there's a lot to learn on a road trip. You know, we've had this massive impact this year. It's been such a transitional year. It looks like it's going to be an 18 month window. Who knows what it's actually going to be. Do you have any sense of what's different and how things might be changing and what you see emerging that's capturing your, your imagination these days? It seems like the world is getting more agile in every sense of the word. And it was already happening, but it was forced further by COVID and it's hard and it has created more volatility, but it has also created more flexibility. And I think opportunity for people to bring ideas to life with lower barriers to entry. I mean, take video conferencing. You don't have to fly across America anymore to have a meaningful conversation with someone. Take video production. You don't have to have a $50,000 video camera to go film a documentary anymore or a really expensive degree, you know? So that accelerated sense of agility, I think can be scary because it's, it can unsettle things, but it also creates a lot of opportunity if you know how to navigate it. And if you can build the confidence and the self-efficacy and the social capital to 
push forward. And the social capital piece we've been learning is super, super important. And I think it's understated how important social capital is for people's career paths. Amazing stuff there with Mike Mariner. Check out the full episode, which we'll include in the show notes for this episode to hear more from Mike and get some of his perspective from back in January. One of the things that strikes me is how future-proof many of these conversations are, where a conversation that happened in the beginning of January of last year is still relevant in January of this year. I think that's true really over the full span of five years that we've been doing this show. Conversations that are meaningful, that really capture something, are in a sense timeless. That brings me to the next conversation, which is one that I probably think about as much as any that I had, in part because I read Michelle Weiss's book as well. The book has a compelling title, Long Life Learning. Michelle is someone who's spent much of her career helping to chart paths for learners throughout their career, their skill development, whether it's at Strata Education, where she spent many years, or working with Clayton Christensen at his think tank on education, or even working at Southern New Hampshire University, which is one of the really groundbreaking online universities that emerged in recent years. Now she's serving as the Vice Chancellor of Strategy and Innovation at National University System. She's someone who has been thinking hard about the future of education, the connection between what you might learn in higher education and how that can translate into being equipped with the skills you need to be ready for the future of work. Long Life Learning is a book I highly recommend. Let's listen in to a bit of my conversation with Michelle from earlier this year. Let's begin with the book, Long Life Learning. It's an interesting turn of phrase. Folks frequently hear lifelong learning, but the, the title is Long Life Learning, Preparing for Jobs That Don't Even Exist Yet. There's a lot in that title. It is a really interesting read. Can you talk about what drove you to put the book together? Yeah, it's obviously a, a play on lifelong learning. And the reason why I thought it was important to do that was for me, especially I've been in this space straddling higher education and the workforce, and I've heard how often in the ether, this concept of lifelong learning, people love to talk about it, but I wasn't necessarily seeing that translate into action. So I thought the new mental model might be helpful. And for me, one of the most useful prodding mechanisms to push us into action has been this thought that, oh my goodness, what are we going to do if we actually have to navigate a longer and more turbulent work life because a lot of the different forecasts and prognostications are pointing to what is not only a longer lifespan, but ultimately a longer work life. And so as we think about long life learning, it suddenly makes clear all the different kinds of changes and moves we need to make in order to connect better the future of education and the future of work. So that's really the motivation behind the book. There's a lot of interesting ideas that you explore in some depth in there. So I like both the conceptual depth and then the breadth of examples, because I, I think you do a good job of, of both those things. And then also there's a lot of case studies and interviews with typically a working professional who is trying to juggle their educational career. And in many cases, they're left to their own devices to do that. The thing that I also uh, appreciated was the way in which the stories that were told could humanize what can sometimes be a somewhat abstracted conversation. And then you did talk about the types of skills that folks should be thinking about to stay job relevant in that long life, preparing for jobs that don't even exist yet. Yeah, it's funny. As I was writing the book, I think some of my colleagues thought I was going to be out there with a crystal ball saying precisely the kinds of jobs that would exist in the future. And that's just impossible. We've already seen just over the last decade, these jobs emerge that are the hot jobs of today that really just didn't exist before. So the purpose of the book is not to identify the specific jobs that will be in demand in the future, but the kinds of skills and the kinds of problem solvers we need to become in order to meet that very uncertain world of work ahead. So as we think about 
better preparing ourselves for this very turbulent future ahead, we have to realize first that, yes, there are certain skills that humans can leverage better than robots. There are certain skills that we just have to relinquish to computers and machine learning and AI just because they're always going to do it better, faster, and without any mistakes. There are other things that are like those more human skills or those quote unquote softer skills or non-cognitive skills, those workforce competencies around collaboration and teamwork and exercising judgment, creativity, systems thinking, right? Yep. Creativity, curiosity, all those kinds of things that we talk about that are going to be core skills needed in the future. But it's also really important that we realize that alone is not enough. We can't just bank on our human skills. In order to be someone who is truly marketable in the future, we have to have also enough of that technical or domain expertise in order to also assess the work or intervene at the right times when we're seeing how that play with artificial intelligence or these different kinds of rapid technological advancements. I think mm -hmm. we're seeing today right now with, for instance, the intense challenges you're seeing around social media, that there are all these different kinds of problems and volume impact repercussions that we didn't evaluate before letting loose the technology. And now what has happened is some of that technology has outstripped our ability to manage it. And so that's what we need to avoid in the future, making sure we're marrying our human skills and our judgment and our ethics and our values with enough of that technological understanding, that vertical expertise. If you think about a T-shaped learner, yep. we need enough of that to be prepared to face all the different kinds of uncertain circumstances that are coming our way. There you go. I think you get a sense of what the conversation was like with Michelle. Her book is fantastic, highly recommended. And some of these concepts around long life learning, T-shaped learners, the mix of the human, social, creative skills that then need to blend and connect with technical skills where you want to have that T-shaped skill profile where you can both look across and be a generalist, but also have these areas where you can go deep. Really interesting stuff. I, I recommend it and it has certainly informed my thinking. Someone else who informed my thinking so much that he did earn his honorary trending in education refrigerator magnet this year is Dr. Steve Jordans out of the University of Toronto, who was a repeat guest on the show. He's a psychologist. He also works in educational technology, developing software called Peer Scholar. He also has been heavily involved in the Center for Learning and Teaching up at the University of Toronto. So he's been right in the thick of a lot of this stuff. We wound up talking about a few different things. The one that perhaps is most profound to me is this notion of the great snapback, which Steve had the gumption to predict that we would snap back into the pre-pandemic way of thinking. I was a little bit more on the fence at the time, but I got to say his prediction to a large extent has been borne out. Granted, we've been struggling with this pandemic for much longer than many of us had anticipated. We're right now in the midst of what I guess is the fifth wave of COVID with the Omicron spike that we're in the midst of right now. But Steve was getting at more deep aspects of human psychology that make us want to revert back to the simpler structures, the prior knowledge and scripts that we had at our disposal to understand how to navigate our lives. Once those were pulled away through this massive psychology experiment of the response to the pandemic, he was saying, we ain't got time for this. We're going to want to get back to what we were doing before. Let's listen in a little to that conversation with Steve, Steve Jordan's J-O-O-R-D-E-N-S. Really interesting thinker. He's pretty prolific as a social media presence. He gets interviewed by Canadian television regularly. So also get interesting stuff on how to navigate the anxiety and social isolation of the pandemic. I recommend Steve as a thinker wholeheartedly, and I'd also recommend the episodes that we had with him which we'll also include in the show notes. 
But let's pick up here a little bit with some of what Steve was talking about earlier this year. The thing we wanted to focus on today in particular was what's going to happen in the relatively near future, we hope, when many of the restrictions we've had around social gathering, the social distancing is what we've talked about, which has resulted in a lot of social isolation. When those are eased up or just suddenly removed, uh, which we've seen in a couple of states in the U.S. lately, how will we respond I was thinking it would be a gradual move forward and some maybe shifting of behaviors, but you've been a little provocative here, Steve, and good job by you on that, talking about what you're referring to as a snapback. Can you catch us up on what you're thinking there? Yeah. And, and actually, I, I have been thinking this now for about a year. I've been curious by this exact question from when this started, because I know forces on either side. Let's do the anti-snapback, first of all. There is this study you and I were discussing it a little bit where they've looked at what they call one-shot learning. The most powerful learning that any human or animal shows is often associated with things that make them sick. So we've all had the uh, experience of having eaten something and mm -hmm. whether it was that or just something else, but we got yeah. sick afterwards mm -hmm. and often getting sick afterwards, one trial, that happening only once can be enough for us to now av avoid, so it's called taste aversion in that case, to avoid mm -hmm. that food for a long period of time. Yeah. And so that reflects a very primitive mechanism that's trying to keep us safe. But if right. something is, it makes us sick, then it triggers this very quick learning. So, Just to jump in right here, yeah. Mescal, I'm looking at you from <laughs> earlier in my life. It wasn't one trial. <laughs> but it was a diverse enough experience that, uh, that I haven't really gone back there. The research that I recall was with mice and yep. th the taste. Unclear whether that is, in fact, a, a natural corollary. But from an evolutionary perspective, you could understand that if something puts us in that level of existential risk, that it is a, a powerful learning experience and maybe it does shift our behaviors. Yeah, it goes back just to contextualize it to our hunting and gathering days. We always say it that way as though those were equal forces. The fact of the matter is we gathered a whole lot more than we hunted yeah. in those days and we scavenged and we ate what was available to be eaten. And so every now and then we would eat something that contained a toxin. And this whole mechanism is, okay, well, just don't eat that twice. <laughs> right. if, if you eat it once, and you find that it really has a negative impact on you, you probably don't want this organism to have to eat it 12 or 13 times because right. some of these things can kill us. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah, really quick, hey, stay away from that thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and so now if we extend this into the COVID world, it's, it's a little different. And this is why I wondered how it would play out. Avoiding other human beings because they're like bags of germs that could make us sick right. to, to an extent. And so it still has that sort of disgust kind of connection, which is the, the basis of that strong learning. And I did wonder that if this went on for a long time, let's say a year of starting to feel repulsed and disgusted by other human beings, would that primitive mechanism come to the fore and, and make us want to avoid people afterwards? Right. How, however, we also knew there was counter forces. And, and the strongest of them all is the fact that we are the most social beings on this planet. Uh, the mm -hmm. only reason we are dominating the planet is because of our ability to work together and, and do things together in a way that no other animal does. And we need humans right from birth. Depending on the human, they need their parents till they're, what, 30, 40? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Quite a while. And, and even then, the process, why this has been so hard on a lot of young people, is as children transition out of the home, they rebuild the social network for themselves to have outside of the home. And so we need these social connections. And now let's take a third factor, which is just plain habit. Mm -hmm. We've had years, decades, you know, depending on how old we all are. I've, for me, that's 50 years of behaving a certain way. And now one year of quite honestly inhibiting that, those habits mm -hmm. we've spent. And that's one of the reasons we're exhausted. It's like we're looking at after the five-year-old and we're that babysitter and the five-year-old keeps getting into trouble and we know we got to keep our eyes on them all yeah. the time. Yeah. And that's our habits are those five-year-olds. And th this is the great snapback. In, in my opinion, it, as soon as we start to feel like we don't have to watch that five-year-old anymore, they're okay. The five-year-old will just do its thing. <laughs> and so our primitive social self and our habitual self, I think, is just yearning to get mm -hmm. out there. Mm -hmm. 
And the thing that really convinced me when I was thinking about these things was when it was Thanksgiving in the States, mm -hmm. the virus was at its worst. It was at, at its peak of bad, but all these people were in the airport, not a usual Thanksgiving, but pretty darn close. It was pretty amazing. And they were interviewing these people and these people would say things like, yes, I know it's dangerous. I know I could be bringing this back to my family. I could be blah, blah, blah. And they'd say, well, why are you doing it? And they would just say things like, I just have to see them. It's been a long time. I don't know when I'll see them again. And, yeah. and, and what they're basically saying to me as a psychologist is my primitive emotional needs are more important to me right now than this potential of risk that's a little vague and, and undetermined. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think that that's to some extent a reflection of all of us. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to hold back this way of being. And I think as soon as we feel safe. Now, I'm not always sure this is a good thing, which we can talk to. But yeah, if nothing else comes into play, then I think we would just go back to being the way we were being. There's a lot more to that conversation. I'm going to cut it off here. Check out the Steve Jordan's episodes. There's three of them in the back catalog. They all get at a lot of this. They also are lighter fare at times even though we're talking about challenging conversations there is good rapport and a fun conversation always great to have steve on the show hopefully have him back again soon with that we're going to pivot to our fourth conversation of five this conversation is with kumar garg who among his many claims to fame he was really the driver in the Obama administration's STEM education program, which he talks about in some depth in our conversation. I would recommend a deep dive into the full conversation. He now works for Eric Schmidt at Schmidt Futures, where they recently ran a tools competition. He's really at the cutting edge of a lot of what's happening in educational technology as it connects with government and policy. Really interesting thinker. This is one of those conversations that may have slipped under the radar. I want to bring it back and it'll be included in the show notes for those of you who want to listen more to what Kumar has to say. We're going to pick up towards the end of the conversation where I'm trying to get his perspective on trends that he's identifying and some of his takes on what he sees on the horizon for the future of learning and the integration of educational technology and engineering into solving these problems. Let's pick up here with my conversation with Kumar. Have you noticed some new trends in this space? You are someone who is getting tremendous access to global innovators around educational technology. Uh, are there broader themes that are striking you in light of the pandemic that are new, surprising, useful to think about? Yeah, I, I would cluster in a couple of areas. One is I think there's going to be a range of innovation on direct support, different types of tutoring models. Yep. And I think People have been interested in tutoring and the potential for tutoring for a long time. Mm -hmm. But I think there's going to be an immense amount of need. And basically everyone I talk to is experimenting with adding maybe potentially tutoring as a service yep. on top of whatever they're doing. Mm -hmm. So I both think that's interesting, but it also means that's like incumbent on us to create ways to have those folks talk to each other and learn. Yeah. I think that's one. A second one that I am personally very interested in, you see the inklings of it. And I think there's a potential revolution coming in assessment. Mm. The reason why I think it's a quiet revolution is I think everyone's sick of assessment. Parents don't like tests. Teachers don't like tests. Kids don't. No one likes them. Yeah. Yeah. And in the pandemic, a lot of tests actually got canceled. Yeah. Right? They just, they couldn't administer them. And so they got put on hold, which meant that a lot of systems said, oh, you don't need a test. Yep. So the question is like, what are we going to come back to? Are we going to come back to none of it, some of it? Mm-hmm. And the reason why I think it's interesting is a lot of what has existed might not actually be serving the goals of what created in the first place. Yep. Are we actually measuring for how much a student is learning? Are we measuring for their future academic potential? Are we measuring yep. some of these other things? So what is that future that we want to build towards? But the example I always give is a company like Duolingo. What's actually made them into a flagship company that is growing quickly is that they're actually eating the TOEFL. There's this big exam that if you're an international student and you want to come study in the U.S., you have to take to show proficiency in the English language. Yeah. It's a site-based exam. You have to physically take it. You have to pay a certain large fee. And you, but universities accept it. Yeah. What Duolingo did, did was they created the equivalent 
it's digital. You don't have to take it in person. You don't have to wait four months for the next time it's offered. You can mm -hmm. take it anytime. Mm -hmm. And it's tied to their curriculum so they can practice. And now lots of universities accept it. And so the value chain of them creating that, especially in a world in which all the traditional exams got canceled, is huge. So, People think of it as a thing that I, you know, have on my phone, but right. a lot of the actual economic value is that they've actually taken an older assessment and totally refashioned it mm. and captured a lot of the value. Mm -hmm. And so my question is, are there a number of future Duolingos heading in plain sight assessment area where people have just not moved quickly enough and mm. said, we can do this a lot faster, a lot cheaper. We can actually tie it to outcomes in a really way. We can make it easier for you to actually get better at it. Yeah. Then it can fit into what you need. Mm -hmm. So those are these two that I think are really powerful. The third one that I'm personally interested in is, is this a pandemic going to change some of our expectations of what kids need to know? Mm. And one that I'm personally interested in is the growing interest in data science. Every conversation you're going to have about the pandemic is, are we on this kind of growth curve? Right. You know? And actually being able to understand all the data ends up mattering a lot in being an effective citizen mm -hmm. around this, but also mm -hmm. understanding how to think about trend lines. And so sure. I just think that increasingly this is becoming an important skill in the economy. It's still early days on how much it's getting into, into, integrated into the K-12 level. I think more and more it is. Yeah. And who's actually going to have the breakthrough set of courses and other things to yeah. make sure that students 18 and under are actually getting to really push on data. I think it's going to be a real open area. Yeah. And is it integrated or is it treated as a separate domain? That's the other thing that I think you're hitting on talking about Schmidt Futures and, and what you're working on is this intersection between computer science and, and teaching and great learning science. It reminds me of the old Steve Jobs challenge that the artists See? and the technologists are not different people. It does seem like there is a different vision for the humans who could ultimately be powering this learning revolution that we're actually hopeful about. Can you talk a little more about how to think about the skills and the profiles that will thrive in the emerging learning ecosystem? Yeah. So I don't think this is a broad point for what every teacher needs to be, mm -hmm. but I do think one new job type that is poised to emerge, there's many different ways you could frame it, like a learning engineer yeah. or an educational data scientist, but there's going to be a new category of jobs that are really built that sit at the intersection of strong computational methods, mm -hmm. able to do the work computationally, mm -hmm. trained up on the methods and be able to think about it in large data systems. And you're actually quite well versed in the domain challenges of education. Yeah. What is learning science? How does it work? Instructional design? What does it mean to deliver? And that you're able to bring those two things together mm -hmm. in the way that you can be both, you know, senior inside a company, senior inside an educational system, school mm -hmm. district. Mm -hmm. Before we wrap up, but Kumar. Anything else happening in this great, big, wide, beautiful world around us that you're, you think is noteworthy? What's capturing your imagination these days? When I think about the national dialogue we're having around infrastructure and what is it that we need to invest for America's success and future, we have to think about not leaving education out of it. When we think about research and development, in the U.S. at least, it's often framed around health. So things like the NIH, yep. or it's framed around Department of Defense, around military systems. But it's been an accident of history that we left education out. Mm. And the fact that we spend one-tenth of one percent of all education spending on R&D, mm. and then we're surprised that we're in the same loop, we've set ourselves up for this. Mm. And so we actually have to invest in the research and development to develop the new ideas, the new processes. And so I just think that as we're rethinking about investing in the infrastructure that fuels how we're going to solve the climate crisis, if we want the educational system to change, it's not going to be by being like run faster to everyone who's already running really fast and doing the hard work. Yeah. We invest in the bottom up so that we're actually generating those ideas and then we can, you know, all collectively work to make those happen on behalf of our children. Fantastic stuff there with Kumar. I definitely recommend checking out the full episode. We went into depth on some new and emerging companies that Schmidt Futures was looking at based on their tools competition. We'll also include links to what Schmidt Futures has going on and what Kumar and team are working on there. 
The tools competition is happening again. Definitely worth keeping an eye on what's new and emerging there. And with his track record where he was able to get STEM on the map broadly in K-12 in the U.S., that's no small undertaking. And we want to be looking for what he's got cooking. As they say in Barton Fink, we're going to hear from him. And I don't mean a postcard. One more conversation to go. It's fascinating when you start doing this. I was initially going to talk about 22 conversations. Then I was going to get it down to 10. Now I'm going with five. And all I'm thinking about is all the incredible conversations that we're not including. We'll see how we evolve this format to continue to showcase some of the high points and the really in-depth conversations we've had over the years. Quite a catalog to dive into and to curate for your benefit. One last topic, one last conversation that we had in 2021 that I continued to think about long after it ended. This was with Timothy Clark, who runs a company called Leader Factor, does a lot of training on leadership development, change management, psychological agility, and in particular, psychological safety. Psychological safety is a big idea ties in many ways to Abraham Maslow, the famous humanistic psychologist whose work began in the middle of the 20th century, in part responding to some of the atrocities of the Second World War. He was looking for ways to find meaning, ways to understand how humans can flourish. I haven't seen anyone connect that type of thinking as effectively as Tim Clark has to how organizations work and how cultures work, a lot of the risks around toxicity, the importance of trust, psychological safety, the ability to challenge the establishment. These themes really permeated all the conversations that I had throughout the year, but I thought Tim did an excellent job of synthesizing a lot of it. He's written extensively about psychological safety. I would encourage you to check out his work, check out our episode where we went in depth with him. I'm going to close with a quick Excerpt from my conversation with Tim. Again, thanks to all of the amazing guests we had throughout the year. 85 conversations, 86 voices we were able to bring in. So much to assimilate. It's my job, I guess, to continue to try to do that, to try to find through lines and make sense of it all. Really enjoying what we're doing. Excited for what's on the horizon heading into 2022. Thanks, as always, for listening. We'll pick up with Tim and then quickly conclude. It's been a transformative year for all of us, but I I imagine with what you have been doing, I've referred to the pandemic as a forcing function in a lot of ways where it's made people move in certain directions and confront things that maybe they weren't dealing with before. And it feels like in many ways, this has been a forcing function for a lot of cultures where it's a stress test and those that are uh, doing well with it, I think are feeling more of a sense of community. I'd love to get some of your perspective on that. Yeah, I, I think it is a forcing function, but normally when we confront a culture and we say, we need to change the culture, we need to transform a culture, what we're really up against is a fossilized status quo, Mm -hmm. a calcified status quo. And it's the hardest single thing to change in an organization. Mm -hmm. You can change everything else, system, structure, process, roles and responsibilities, policies and procedures, all that stuff. Those are configurable parts. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, they're not that difficult to change. Culture, on the other hand, is a completely different matter. Mm -hmm. It's the single most difficult thing to change. But here's the good news. The pandemic, it has a beautiful benefit. And that is that it liquefies the status quo. Mm -hmm. So what would otherwise take a long time to change, we now have this unique opportunity where our equilibrium has been rocked into a state of disequilibrium. We're in a fluid state because Mm -hmm. of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And in that fluid state, we can accelerate cultural change if we want to. Yeah, That is the opportunity that most all of us have in front of us. Yeah, that's fantastic. I'm still 
chewing on the mental image of the, the calcified culture being liquefied by the disruption of the pandemic. Can you explain for us a bit what psychological safety is? And I know you've gone into uh, s some serious depth here. Yes. Psychological safety, I define it in five words. It's an environment of rewarded vulnerability. Mm. If you're in an environment that rewards acts of vulnerability rather than punishing them. Mm. If you engage in an act of vulnerability, now what am I talking about? Let me just mention a few everyday common acts of vulnerability. When you're working with other people, just presenting yourself, asking questions, making suggestions, giving and receiving feedback, and then all the way up to challenging the status quo. Mm. Those are acts of vulnerability. As humans, whenever we go into social units, we engage in threat detection. Mm -hmm. We're trying to figure out if we're in a safe or an unsafe environment. If we're in an unsafe environment, we're going to pull back. We're going to withdraw. We're going to manage personal risk. We're not going to commit those acts of vulnerability because we think we're going to get punished. Right. In a safe environment, we will jump in. We'll, we will eagerly release our discretionary efforts and we'll go for it. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason that rewarded vulnerability is important is because without it, you really can't do anything. You can't be yourself. It's too expensive. Mm -hmm. You can't learn the way that you would normally learn, not at the velocity that you could. You cannot contribute at your potential and you certainly can't challenge the status quo to make things better. Mm -hmm. So all of the fundamental things that we need to do in organizations we cannot do if vulnerability is punished. Mm -hmm. so we need vulnerability to be rewarded. That's the essence of what psychological safety is. Yeah, that's great. It made me think back to your origin story where I imagine the football team at Utah needed to have some comfort with vulnerability to really thrive and perform optimally. I was thinking about the influence that good psychological safety has on the ability for the team to be greater than the sum of its parts it seems pretty foundational. I've been in both types of environments by my reckoning. And what I find is when it's more individualistic and competitive, intra-team competitive, yeah. that it's harder to really do your best work collaboratively. It can be because let's think about an athletic team. Who's your opponent? Mm. Now, this is where it gets interesting because your opponent is the other team that you're playing, but mm. that's not actually fully true. Your first opponent would be the other members of the team that play your position. Mm -hmm. You're trying to beat them out. Mm -hmm. So you have this very interesting and ironic situation where you have an internal opponent or opponents, mm -hmm. and then you have external opponents. And so it makes it difficult sometimes, to your point, to be vulnerable and to have that rewarded. Yeah. And so that's where the leaders, the coaches come in. They set the prevailing norms of the organization. Mm -hmm. And what I have found is that the most successful pattern is when they create an environment in which they separate or detach fear. Mm from mistakes mm -hmm. and failure. They pull those apart. Mm -hmm. They are probably normally associated with each other in most environments, Yeah, but they need to be divorced hmm. because when they are, then we have a new paradigm that says mistakes are not the exception. They are the expectation. This is how we learn. This is how we progress. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of environment that fosters accelerated growth. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, I've experienced both. Yeah. Mike, probably as you have, right? Yeah, yeah. In some instances, the leaders did pull apart fear from failure and mistakes. And in other instances, other environments that I've been in, mm -hmm. it wasn't the case. And if you made mistakes, you got clobbered. So this is the universal pattern that we discovered through our research, both qualitative and quantitative. And what it says is that psychological safety is obviously not a binary proposition. It's not something that you have or you don't have. It's a matter of degree, but 
even more than that, it progresses through four stages. The first stage is what we call inclusion safety, which means that you feel included, you feel accepted, you feel a sense of belonging, and that's your foundation. And in every organization, that should be your preoccupation to put that in place first. Mm -hmm. So put your foundation of inclusion safety, put that in place first. That's the foundation. It will vary by individual, but the goal is that you create that condition for everyone. Mm -hmm. And the, the reason that's stage one is because that's the first stage of, of human needs. And in our global research, that's what 92% of all the people that we surveyed, that's what they said is, I'm concerned about being included first. And if you go back to Maslow's, some of his original work, he does articulate what he called belongingness needs. Mm -hmm. And so we're definitely building on that research and we're validating some of that. Mm -hmm. So then we go to stage two, which is learner safety means that you can engage in the learning process and you're not going to be embarrassed or marginalized mm -hmm. or harshly criticized, asking questions, giving and receiving feedback, experimenting, making mistakes. You got to be able to do those things. Then we go to stage three, which is contributor safety, which means I can take what I learned in stage two. I can take all of that. I can use it. I can apply it to make a difference. Mm -hmm. And most human beings want to make a difference. Mm -hmm. That's stage three. Use all of my talents, skills, abilities, knowledge, and contribute. Be a player. Make a difference. Mm -hmm. And then we go to stage four, the culminating stage, which is challenger safety. Hmm. Now, this is where it gets most fascinating. Challenger safety means that you feel safe to challenge the status quo without retaliation or hmm. retribution. Mm -hmm. Now, think about the level of risk that you're at by the time you get to stage four. Think about the vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Think about the personal exposure that you feel at stage four. It, it really goes up. Yeah. So as you're progressing through the four stages, yes, you're following the sequence of natural human needs, mm -hmm. but you are also climbing a ladder of vulnerability. Mm -hmm. So that's the progression. Excellent stuff there with Tim. Lots to chew on. Recommend that you do dive in. We'll include a link to the Tim episode as well as all five of the episodes that we covered as part of today's show, there's so many conversations that we had, it's difficult to do justice to them all. I did my best here. These are five conversations that I think back on among the many. It's a good problem to have. There's so many amazing conversations to do justice to them. You need to give a decent amount of time. And then before you know it, it's time to wrap up. As we're going out here, I did want to leave with a little bit of sound. One more bonus conversation. This is... Bob Sternberg, the legendary psychologist, studied intelligence, a lot of revolutionary thinking throughout his career, studying creativity, evolving his thinking. He's now talking about adaptive intelligence. That's the book that he had out earlier this year. Really interesting conversation. I thought his perspective when we closed our conversation really sums up a lot of my thinking about where we are at this point in time in 2021. Please let me know how we're doing. Reach out to me on LinkedIn, Michael Palmer. If you're not connected to me already, if you're a listener of this show, I'd love to connect with you. Hit us up on at Trending in Ed on Twitter. Would love to hear from you. We're going to conclude here with Bob. Thanks to everyone who has listened. Without our supporters and listeners and folks who are leaning in, we never would have gotten this far. And I really do think we're just getting started. So with that... Thanks for an incredible 2021. We'll be back soon. Looking at 2022, we got 22 trends for 2022 on the horizon. But before we do any of that, we're going to let Bob Sternberg take us out. Thanks again for listening. When you were talking, I just thought of the Robert Frost poem on the road not taken. Mm. Uh, and in that poem, 
uh, a guy's walking along a road and he realizes that the roads diverge and he can either take the easy road, which he's always been on, or he can take a more challenging, but also more rewarding road. Mm -hmm. Now, what I realized while you were talking is that the poem for 2021 needs to be changed. You're walking along the road and all of a sudden it's strewn with obstacles and problems. And there's another road you could take that also has challenges, but they're challenges that lead to the future. Mm. So it's no longer the easy road versus the hard road. It's the road that was easy, but that is now full of obstacles and problems or saying this road isn't working anymore. It's time for us to change. And it's time for us to say, look, that other road also has challenges, but they're the ones that are going to lead to the future. They're the ones that are going to say, we need to develop creativity. And the creativity is not some inborn ability. It's simply deciding that, yes, it's okay to ask if there's a better way to do things. It's about developing common sense. How much common sense do we see anymore? I'm constantly reading about bigotry and violence. I mean, just you know, leading your life in a way that makes any sense and, and a road that leads to wisdom, which is seeking some kind of balance in your life and saying, it's not just about me. It's what can I do? Sure for myself, but not only just for other people today, but for the future. Hmm. And I'm hoping that in the Frostian sense, we'll take the road not taken because the road we're on now isn't even an easy road anymore. Hmm. And the question is, do we have the courage I think a lot of it today is just about straightforward courage to change our path and say, this clearly isn't working. When you look at what's happening to our climate, when you look at the incredible income disparities in this country and other countries where there are people living on the streets and people who don't know what to do with their billions of dollars, when there are viruses that are mutating at a very rapid rate, we got to change and we got to think not in terms of uh, what's your IQ or your SAT score or your ACT score, but are you adaptively intelligent? Can you make things work in a world that is changing in ways that we really can't predict? Mm -hmm. 